Hey, everybody. I'm Jen Garrett, internationally recognized branding consultant and best-selling author of the books, Move the Ball and Dominate the Game. By having a relentless mentality, I've pushed boundaries and gotten into rooms with pro athletes and power players, built a successful business, and moved the ball in male-dominated industries. Now, I'm using my same of the ball methodology to help thousands of people dominate their game when it comes to their brands and creating opportunities. This podcast is all about uncovering strategies of the world's best athletes and business leaders to help you get to that next level. Join me in conversations that will elevate your hustle and get you across the goal line. It's time to suit up, to show up, and to move the ball. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Real quickly, if you haven't already done so, be sure that you follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also share the show with some colleagues, coworkers, friends, and family too. It's one way that you can help me to move the ball. I've said many times on this show that this season, I'm really focused on not just bringing you conversations to help you to move the ball, but to really help you to elevate, separate, and dominate. And I'm bringing guests on who are giving you tips on how to do just that. For today's episode, you're in for a real treat. This guy is someone who is absolutely amazing and who has crushed it throughout the many things he has done in his career. From being an Air Force fighter pilot to competing on American Ninja Warrior, to being an impactful speaker, to sitting in the C-suite and being a tech exec, today's guest, Joel Need, knows how to move the ball and dominate the game. On the show, we talk about insights he's gleaned from all of these experiences and more. This is an episode you want to pay special attention to. You ready? Let's go. Joel, it is so great to have you on the show and inside the huddle with us today. We've known each other for many years now, and you're like me. You're always staying on the move. You're keeping busy. And I love seeing all the things that you've been up to and just following you on your journey. And so there's a number of things I want to discuss with you during our time together today. But my first question for you is, are you ready to move the ball? Jen, I'm absolutely ready to move the ball. Really excited to have this conversation. As you said, we've been talking for many years and we're finally putting the words out into the universe and having a great conversation together. Looking forward to it. I'm glad that you're here with us today. And I know you've got such great stories and insights to share. And like you, I do many things always on the move. And where I want to start our conversation is I want to ask you about, so your call sign when you flew in the Air Force was Thor. Like there's always a story behind those names and how they came to be. So what is that story? Yeah, so so call signs, you don't invent your own call sign. It's given to you. And there's a naming ceremony that takes place for all fighter pilots to get that call sign. And there's really two characteristics of a call sign. One, it has to sound cool, meaning it has to be something where if you are introducing that person, it has to be something that sounds really cool and, and exciting. And then two, it has to have a horrible origin story. So it's like the reverse of superheroes that have good origin stories has to be very embarrassing for that person. And it has to be something that they're not proud of. And and after flying for about six months in a unit, there's no shortage of embarrassing stories for all of us and that we can pick from. And the other part is that there's always a cover story. And here's what I mean by that. We, we aren't allowed to tell the embarrassing story unless we are two beverages of choice into the conversation. And for me, the cover story is that I was an instructor and I was the hammer as the instructor, which is kind of true. I was a pretty hard instructor, but that's super boring. All that is, is, you know, me being Thor because I, I was the hammer as an instructor. The real story 
is a lot more embarrassing. It involves a lightning strike on my wingman. And if we get two beverages of choice into the conversation, I'll, I'll show the rest of it. Okay, sounds like a plan. And something that you and I also have in common, aside from always being on the move, is our military service, different branches. You are obviously Air Force and I'm Army, different functional areas. You're a pilot. I went the attorney route. Although something that my listeners probably don't know, and you probably don't know this either, because I don't think I told you, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot. Really? Yeah. So I was an engineering undergrad. And my plan was after school, I was going to march my way in and OCS into the Air Force. And I had a number of people that were like, well, you know, just be careful, Jen, about those recruiters and they'll tell you anything. And it spoofed me enough to be like, "Mm, maybe not. And so I never did. But there are times I'm just like, well, why did I listen to them? Reality is they're still just going in doesn't mean that you're going to fly, right? There's a lot of qualifications and stuff too. So I may not have ever made it to becoming a pilot. But as I was a kid, that was what I wanted to do. That's awesome. And and I hear that a lot, that other people have that desire to go fly. And I'll tell you, it was an amazing chapter. I loved every minute of it. Every time that I was upside down in an airplane, going faster than the speed of sound, I had a big smile on my face behind the mask. But the other thing I always say is I'm just as happy in this current chapter in the business world. There's nothing magical about being a fighter pilot, though I really enjoyed it. I find the same level of satisfaction doing other things in life. You're just one of those people that no matter what it is you're doing, you're going to find that joy and make the most of it and make it all count. And so it's one thing that I've always enjoyed about you and just seeing the things that you're up to. Less than 1% of Americans make the decision to serve. Tell us about what was your motivation and why aviation? I've been an aviation geek my entire life, but like, what was it for you that wanted to serve? And secondly, to become a pilot and join the Air Force. So it really came down to two things when I was in high school that connected me to military. So I was accepted to the Air Force Academy and to West Point, too, actually, and really considered that path for myself as well. But what it came down to was, one, I knew that I needed some discipline. And so though I was a smart kid, I wasn't the most organized kid. I lacked structure for my life. I lacked discipline. But I had the self-awareness to at least know that that was the case. And so I was really attracted to this idea that I was going to be put through a program that was going to enhance my discipline, make me more responsible for outcomes that that I was driving. And I was really looking forward to being exposed to that structure. And then two, just that sense of purpose. My entire life, I'd always been searching for connection to things I'm passionate about and a sense of meaning. And and I was just talking about this, this morning that there's no greater sense of service or meaning, I think, that I've been able to find than, than being in the military and serving something that's bigger than you and also being willing to put everything on the line, including your life, if, if that's what's called to happen. And I was just so proud of that and to be associated with people that were along that same journey. So that combination of discipline and service were what really attracted me to the military. As you know, on my show, I have a lot of pro athletes that come on and we talk about how the competitive athlete mentality really helps you to be successful in whatever it is you're going to look to do beyond sports. Now, the military also gives you a mindset and a mentality and that implementation of a discipline structure. What are some of the things that you've taken away? I mean, you had a long military career as well. What are things that you really honed in on throughout your time in the service that have helped you to be successful beyond the uniform? Yeah, great question. So, I'll tell you what it didn't serve right away, because then it'll help you to, to understand what I think it did serve. I learned nothing about the business world. And I walked into my next chapter in business, woefully unprepared for, for that world. And that's okay. The military is not supposed to set you up for that. But what I found very quickly was that what I lacked in knowledge about business, 
I made up for in a deep understanding of how to build teams and how to drive outcomes, how to, how to have a structured approach to execution. And that's really lacking today. There's certainly successful teams that execute, but it's a lot of shoot from the hip or it's over planning. They don't really have that sweet spot of building a plan that you're comfortable with and, and not waiting for a perfect plan, just building it to the 80% level and then executing with precision and discipline and being able to update the group on the progress and, and make iterations. The military just prepares you for that in an environment where mistakes and failures are punished sometimes with death. And, and so we had to get really good at that. And what I learned is that it's a very unique skill set that many in the business world just completely lack. Something else about the military that I've learned too is the importance of building relationships and those relationships will carry you beyond service into whatever it is you do beyond. So when you look at your network as you were transitioning from the military environment to the business world, did your network help you? How was that as you look to be successful in a new chapter? I would say did almost nothing for me, my existing network. And, and probably for the same reason that your audience who, who play professional sports would struggle in the same way as they went into the business world because their entire network was based off of one outcome and that's success on the field. And then they're moving into this entirely new chapter that is just going to have different network and, and different outcomes that you're pursuing. And so while I really appreciated all the mentoring from the generals and the military leaders that I've been exposed to in the past, they lacked both the network and the expertise to help me in the next chapter. So I, once again, I was completely unprepared via that network. So how did you get prepared? And what were some of the things that you did? Because I work with a lot of folks that are also veterans and that are looking to make that transition. And so, I mean, there's a whole plethora of resources out there that say that they can help veterans as they make that transition. What were some of the things that you did so that you could ensure that you, you had a successful business career? Yeah, I had to go out there and boldly recreate a network and go go find people that I wanted to be connected to from a business perspective. I, I went out and got my MBA as well. I went to the University of Texas and did the executive MBA program out there, which means I did it on the weekends. And I was surrounded by a class of people that were in the same age group as I was in executive MBAs. The average age is 38, 39 or so. And so I was 33 at the time and I was surrounded by people that understood business and of course, they loved the fact that they had a military members in the middle of the wars, they could help me out. And I really appreciated all of the leaning in that they put into me because I had no idea what I was talking about from a business perspective. And uh, they helped me make up for that by really coaching me along the way. That was a critical step to creating this new network that I had to establish. And you bring up a good point about the MBA program, whether it's an executive MBA or it's some other educational program, undergrad or master's degree, graduate level, it's all about tapping into that network too and those relationships to help you to continue to move the ball and be successful. And like you, I have an MBA. I did mine earlier in my career from Pepperdine. It's been many, many years. I won't disclose how many, but it's been a long time since I was in my MBA program. But there are still relationships from way back then that I still have today. And we talk about business topics and we help each other. And so I would really just encourage those listening to think about what networks or what schools are you a part of? How can you tap into the relationships that you have through that or the alumni network to really, again, continue to cultivate opportunities and look at how you can navigate and grow your career? A hundred percent. And then the thing I'd add on there is that I would recommend against doing it virtually or online. And I had a lot of friends that did that and they gained a lot of the book knowledge that I have because anybody can go read the books and, and gain the knowledge. 
But the network that I established and the mentors and the relationships were absolutely critical to my next chapter. And it's not that I work with any of them, although I did work with one of the individuals from my class. I hired him when I became a CEO. But everybody else was just there to to help me with my development and help expose me to new opportunities. And, and I can't stress enough how critical those relationships were in addition to the knowledge that you get from an MBA program. Oh, absolutely. Now, something that I do a lot of today is I work with director, VP, C-suite level folks on how do they take and package their brands to be able to continue to get those next level jobs and really go in the fields that they want, get the pay that they want, that kind of thing. Because everybody's got a lot of experience when you're at that level, but it's really honing it in and packaging it in a way that differentiates and separates you from all the others that are competing for those same jobs. So when you look at the things that you did right in your career, what are some of the things that you have done to really differentiate and separate yourself? And secondly, when you look at your brand, like what are some of the things that you like people to know about who Joel is and what he brings to the table? So the first part, you know, what did I do right along that journey? In the military, the only thing you can do right is just execute better than the person next to you to, to stand out. In other words, it's, it's actually a really comfortable place, even though we're dealing with very high risk situations and very little tolerance for error in the combat environment, not to say that I was in the combat environment, but the one that we're training towards. The outcomes that we are building towards in the military are just a matter of you executing the plan. All you have to do is grind it out. It's a very clear path to success. Even becoming a SEAL is really just a matter of putting up with the pain of the process for a period of time. And you're going to get to the outside of it and be successful. That's very different from what I'd call the real world or the business world, where there's infinite number of paths. There's no training course necessarily, depending on where you go, that's going to set you up for success. Certainly not in your mid-30s when they're expecting you to already have some of that discipline established. And so I found myself, once again, unprepared as I entered this new environment. So everything I did in the previous environment in the military was just about working harder than everyone else. And the next environment is about having to pick my path, be more strategic, and, and make some of those high-level decisions before I started executing. And so for me, once again, those mentors were critical. It was all about defining what I wanted to be in the long term and then working backwards from that. And so I got set up for success with some really strong mentors in that place. And I would never have gotten anywhere without them. So I want to talk about something very different than what we're talking about now, which is you actually have done something that a lot of people would find very, very cool and exciting aside from being a fighter pilot is that you actually participated on American Indra Warrior. So early 2000s, that's really kind of when the era was born of like reality TV and reality game shows and all those kind of things or Survivor, The Apprentice, American Idol, all of those things. And in 2009, I believe, is when American Ninja Warrior started. How did you get linked up with that? Tell us more about that. So that started probably how most people react to watching the show. And that is saying, hey, one, that's really cool. It kind of makes you feel like what the games you played when you were a kid at the playground or even the floor is lava as you're running around on couches, you know, when you're a toddler. And so as I watched that, I thought, what a cool concept. And then the very next thing I'd say is, and I could do that. I could totally do that. I, I would crush this. I was wrong on the second account that it required way more training than I ever would have thought possible. I've done it four times now. I've been on four seasons of the show and it's an absolute blast. I'm kind of the grandpa on the show at this stage. I'm 46 years old and the average age is probably 21 when you go out there. But I hold my own. I do pretty well next to these kids. And that wasn't the case right off the bat. When I first did it and, and did the first season, very challenged by the process, didn't get very far. But every year, I feel a little more prepared to go take it on. 
And how has being on the show, first, it's fantastic. I look at it, I'm like, yeah, I would make a fool of myself. I mean, obviously you have to train. I am in pretty good shape, but it's intense. I know a lot of folks that have been on the show and I mean, they're constantly training. How has participating on American Ninja Warrior helped you with everything else that you're doing in terms of creating opportunities? And the reason I ask that is so way back, In the day when I was getting my MBA program, now I'm really going to date myself a little bit. The Apprentice was just coming out and I had friends that were like, oh, Jen, you know, you should do that. And I was like, no, I don't have a camcorder. You had to do a video submission. In hindsight, I'm like, man, why didn't I do something like that? Because the exposure gives you opportunities to network with people, but also people are learning about you and who you are. And so now my brand back then is very different than it is now. But I just think back about like being able to participate in those types of experiences opens up a whole nother range of opportunities. So how has being on that show helped you to cultivate other things that you're doing? A CEO network that I'm a part of has a principle where they talk about work as hard as you can in your business, but you're dealing with a lot of workaholics and, and people that'll focus too much on their business given the opportunity. And what they also said was, and find something else that's completely separate from your business and put some effort into that too. In other words, find a hobby that's totally separate from what you do in your day job and, and invest a lot of time into that. And I, it was really good advice because it allows you to have something that is difficult and, and a growth journey and challenging, but it's a bit of a reset for my mind every time I start to train for this because whether I was in my CEO role in my previous job or in my tech exec role in my current one, I can turn off all of that noise of what I was worried about for that role that day and then focus on something totally different. So today I went and worked out for an hour and my entire focus was on preparing for this Ninja Warrior stuff. And it's awesome to find something that's equally challenging, sometimes more challenging, and it forces me to be present and and not think about some of those stressors from the rest of my life. You know, it's another set of stressors. Clearly, it's difficult. But at the same time, it's really powerful and mindful to be able to shift it to something new. And I've, I've found that has been a bit of a superpower for me. And what has been the most memorable part of being a part of an American Ninja Warrior? For me, it's the community. It's completely the opposite of the world I'm in in business. The world I'm in in business, we all have really probably overhyped salaries. And, you know, I'm in tech and, and, you know, there's no shortage of people that have very bloated salaries and uh, big things we're going after. And then now you go over to American Ninja Warrior and it's a bunch of passion projects for these kids. I say kids in their early 20s, mid 20s, they're making no money off of doing this. Even the elite athletes make very, very little money for this. They have very, very few sponsorships, even though they're the ones on TV and you recognize their names, they're not attaching this to a lot of compensation. And there's something really pure about that and exciting about that community. I love to see these kids that are put in all this effort to do this and they don't get paid to do it. and, And yet they're so good at it. And they're just really inspiring communities. So I love being a part of that group. One other person that I think about when I think about American Ninja Warrior is Ethan Swanson. Ethan is based here in Chicago. And so I always love seeing him and and what he posts on social media. He's one of those people that just loves being a part of that. And it is a passion thing. It's not just about trying to find some job to make a bunch of money. You're really loving what you're doing, being a part of that. Yeah, there's something pure about that when you're doing it without the, the paycheck dangled at the end of it. Now, something else I wanted to chat with you about on the show is you have gone through battling stage four cancer. I mean, that's something that is very difficult. I can imagine just emotionally, mentally, physically to go through the treatments and stuff. Tell us about when you found out and just that journey through treatment. Yeah. So back in 2010, I was on top of the world. I was feeling great. I was actually going through the interview process to become one of the next American Air Force Thunderbirds which is like uh, the Navy's Blue Angels, except better. 
haha. And then I was hit with a, you know, out of left field, the surprise of my life that not only did I have cancer, but stage four cancer. And I mean, I was I was at the peak of good health, but at the same time, I had a little bit of pain, like a, on a scale of one to 10, it was like a one or a two, but it had stuck around long enough so, so that I started mentioning it to doctors. And at first they'd say, oh, you're working out too hard, or maybe you pulled too many G's in the jets and you strained something. And then after a while, they started taking it more seriously. They did a, an ultrasound and found a racquetball inside of my body where there should not be a racquetball and ended up being the tumor. And we're off to the races with stage four cancer. And so how was that mentally? I can I can only imagine how difficult that is to process through, like walk us through how you dealt with that from a mental standpoint. Really devastating. And you would think, you know, this guy's a fighter pilot and he's been through some hairy situations. He's better prepared to handle news like this. But I don't think that was the case. I really feel like there's nothing you could do to be prepared for that. And so I was pretty despondent. I was curled up in a fetal position for about 30 days, just feeling very, very sorry for myself. I was a zombie. I was up all night watching the ceiling fan spin. And then during the day, I was just you know, waiting for night so I could sleep. And it was just a vicious cycle because sleep never occurred. And I was just like a, a lost puppy for about 30 days. And as you look back on that journey, like how has going through that changed your perspectives and how you handle today? That's absolutely the turning point of my life, having cancer, even more than becoming a fighter pilot or going to the Air Force Academy or fill in the blank with any of the other things that I've gotten the opportunity to do. The cancer battle was by far the most transformative experience from a couple of perspectives. The way I frame it is through a quote that I really like that somebody said, I'm not sure who said it, but I love it, which is, the dying have the most to teach us about life. And I think that most of us would agree with that, especially if you've been around somebody who's at the, the end of their life. You just hear the incredible wisdom from them as they're reflecting back on their lives and they're thinking about what they value and what they regret. And it just gives you this sense of clarity when you're in those moments. And, and so for me, the clarity was around what my priorities should be and what they shouldn't have been. And for a long time, I've been managing expectations and perceptions of other people. And that, to be honest, they weren't people I really cared about, but I just wanted to look good from a public perspective. And having cancer taught me that one, people aren't even looking at you, first of all, you know, is that we all think that in our own minds, we're the star of a movie that's taking place. And we assume that's the case for everybody else that they're all watching us. They're not, they're not counting your successes. They're not counting your failures. Very few people are even seeing it occur. Even the most notorious of us, they're not watching that hard because we're all just focused on ourselves. And that's when you first hear that, it sounds a little bit depressing as almost as if nobody else is paying attention to us. But if we really think about it, it's liberating because now I don't have to manage that expectation anymore. I can live more authentically and I can do the things that are important to me. And so that really gave me permission to fail. And whether that was going on Ninja Warrior and, and failing very early in the early seasons or failing publicly by trying a new chapter in business and being the dumbest guy in the room, all of these things were critical lessons that I took from cancer and, and you know a bit of a change to my lifestyle from how I was before cancer. I love you sharing that. And it makes me think about as we continue to get older and mature, our perspective change. And usually there are events that helps us to shape those perspectives. And for me, I mean, that really happened in 2016 when my dad passed away very unexpectedly. And for me, life was great. Just like you, you're on the top of your game. Things were good. My goal was to be a Fortune 500 CEO. I had been in senior leadership in Fortune 50 companies in my 20s. 
And so I was on the path. And after my dad died, that made me really think about like how nobody really cares about this resume that I've been building, the seven degrees. I used to put together billion dollar agreements, like all things that are impressive, right? And I tell people that today and they're like, wow. But at the end of the day, when it's my turn to go, no one's going to care about any of that stuff. Right. And so for me, and that's why I left corporate, it was really about what's the impact? What's the legacy? What do I really want people to remember? And what do I want to be proud of aside from just these bullet points on a resume? And so it really changes your perspective. And to your point about a level of freedom, it doesn't matter what other people think or trying to fit inside a box. One thing that people will ask me that are in like Fortune 500 companies are like, well, how is it being an entrepreneur? And there's a lot of things in that. But the thing that I say I appreciate the most is I don't have to fit someone else's expectations of who or what I should look like or the voice that I have to put out. I can be my authentic self 100% of the time and not have to worry about being judged for that. And that's not going to limit my upward mobility or where I go because I really am focused on what I want to do. And it doesn't matter if someone else doesn't like the brand that I have, then we're just not going to be a good fit and it's okay. But when you're in a certain environment, you feel like you have to fit a mold, right? Especially being in corporate. And I love my time in corporate. So I wasn't not saying anything about that, but there is this ability to just be more of myself and showcase vulnerability and talk about when things aren't always that great and not feel like that's going to be viewed as a weakness or take away from you and your strength as a leader. Well said. It, it reminds me of a quote that I really like that says that everyone has two lives and the second begins when you realize you only have one. And I think people at some point in their lives stop living for others and, and begin living authentically for themselves. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of people that happens late in life and maybe even at the end of life as they finally realize that they can live authentically and that nobody's keeping score. And, you know, the earlier you can figure that out, the better. Now, you've clearly been successful in a lot of different areas in your military career. You are in the C-suite, tech exec all kinds of great things for people that are thinking about their careers and how they can be successful and navigate. And for those that are interested in upward mobility, what are some pieces of advice that you would pass on to people about how to separate themselves and really what should they be doing to help ensure their upward movement in their careers? First of all, definitely don't hang your hat on the titles and worry about whether or not you're achieving those titles. Because I know C-level execs that are less effective than, than some of their team members out there. And it's, it's not a perfect representation of your success and efficiency and effectiveness in that role. The thing I've learned is that, you know, go find things that you're passionate about, find things that you're excited about. And very often folks will say, well, that's easy for you. You run this fun consulting company that's all former fighter pilots and Navy SEALs, or you were a fighter pilot, or you're in tech. Those all sound really cool. It's easy to find purpose in there. And when I push back on that, I say, you have something you're passionate about as well. And the way you'll find that most likely is by answering the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What's the thing that you would do in life if right now you could lose every bit of your fear and just go forward with gusto? And, and everyone knows the answer to that. As I say it out loud, everyone who's listening had a reaction to it and knows exactly what that is. And the reason that's such an important question is because typically that fear obscures what our passion is and what we really want to go pursue because it's a lot easier to have that opportunity obscured by our fear than it is a face the fact that we actually know what we want to do. There's just something between it that's our fear that's stopping us from taking action against it. 
that's fantastic. I think we all know the answer to that question, just like you said, because we think about that and then we let this inner voice in our head talk us out of those things. So if we really focus on, okay, what is it that we want to do? And you put those fears aside and just put together that game plan or that playbook and then just got to execute and you pivot along the way because that plan isn't going to go 100% the way you want it to. But it's really about letting go of that fear and just going after what you want. And the rest will fall into place. When you're passionate about something, you have this extra discipline. I don't want to just say motivation because motivation can fade, but you have this discipline to continue to work at things when you're passionate about them. Exactly. The quote I love is that the best work feels like focused play. And whether I was a fighter pilot or a CEO or in tech, I find jobs where it feels like focused play. I was just telling somebody today that I'll never retire. That sounds miserable to me. And it's not because I'm a workaholic. It's because I pick things to do for a job that I'm really passionate about and enjoy. And I don't want to work 24 hours a day and I want to have a work-life harmony and and a balance that exists between what I do for recreation and and what I do for work. But I also really enjoy investing and growing teams and growing myself and, and becoming a better leader and a better follower. And that's a path I never want to be off of. I love that quote. And I mean, they say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I've heard that quote so much. So it sounds like, okay, yeah, it's cliche. Got it. But it's very true. I mean, if you're passionate about what you're doing, then people feel like work has to be something that you dread going to, right? And it's like, okay, I got to get up, got to go to work. And then when I get home, then I can do some things that are fun. No, you should integrate that fun into your day because the most time you spend is at work. So make sure it's doing something that you enjoy. So what we're going to do now, Joel, is we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I've got some other questions that I want to ask you, but we're also going to get into my two minute drill and just have some fun. We will be right back. Hey, have you moved the ball in your own life today? If you're working toward your dream job, a new personal record or a bigger salary, you need a plan to consistently make progress. That's why I wrote Move the Ball and Dominate the Game. These books are packed with strategy and easy to implement tips on gaining clarity of your goals, developing your own personalized playbook for success, pushing your boundaries of comfortability, and really elevating and dominating. Go to www.dominateandmove.com and enter code DOMINATE2023 for a 20% discount on the bundle. And all books are signed copies as well. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, Joel, we are back. First, what I want to do is take you through that two-minute drill. And then I got some other questions to close the show. Are you ready? All set. Let's go. All right. First question is, what three words would you use to describe yourself? Adventurous, anti-fragile, and relentless. Nice. I've never heard someone use anti-fragile. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Next question is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I'll share that when I was going through my fighter pilot training, I almost washed out of the program because I kept passing out in the G-force training, so the centrifuge. And so I came within one more time of passing out of never flying again and just not becoming a fighter pilot whatsoever. So very, very close to, to failing in that chapter. Oh, wow. But you made it. I did. Next question is, would you rather be the world champion of your sport or the CEO of a billion-dollar company and why? I'd rather be the CEO of a billion-dollar company and only from this perspective. I'd rather at this stage of my life lead teams and and be significant for a bunch of people instead of just being the technical expert in any capacity, whether that's the best sports athlete or the best technical executor in in a role. I want to be a leader. What book are you currently reading or what podcast are you currently listening to? 
I'm reading a religious book on idolatry. That's really interesting. And another book that I'm reading, I'm always reading multiple books at a time. And the other one is is super boring. It's about OKRs, objectives and key results, which is something that I lead for the company I work for. 40,000 people helping to build out their objectives and key results. I'm passionate about it. The rest of the world probably thinks that's the most boring thing you could ever read about, but I love it. If you could have any song played at all of your public appearances, what would that one song be? So there's one song that defines my life and it's been my favorite song since I was about nine years old. And I I love it so much that I don't even play it very often because I never want to get tired of it. I played it when I left high school for the Air Force Academy in 1995. I played it when I graduated. I played it when I got married. I played it the first time I flew an F-15. I played it for the birth of each of my kids. And the song is Man in Motion, an amazing song. I've never heard it from the soundtrack for St. Elmo's Fire, an old 80s movie, but it's an awesome, awesome song, Man in Motion. All right. I will have to check that out. The next question is, what would your next career move be if you were guaranteed to succeed? I'm making the transition into significance in my next chapter. In other words, I think that the people that I, I want to role play and want to become later in life are the ones that I saw as successful in their 40s and then significant in their 50s. And so for me, it's about finding something that has really positive outcomes for a large group of people that we can go pursue and being successful at driving those outcomes. So whether that's motivating people to find their life's purpose, or it's helping feed kids in Africa, something that has a humanitarian connection to it, in addition to the business aspect. Okay, you have 24 hours and a private plane that will take you anywhere. Where are you going? My favorite place in the world is Florence, Italy. And I love it. First of all, it's just incredibly beautiful. It's where the Statue of David is. Just incredible art and history there. But I really appreciate the Renaissance period and the Renaissance men from that period. You think about Michelangelo and Da Vinci and all the other brilliant people that came from that time period. It's this period where we exited the Dark Ages. And we really don't have too much academics that come from the dark ages and you're just really terrible time. And all of a sudden we made this massive leap forward in knowledge and just how we connected with one another. It's almost akin to like the invention of the internet, what it's done for us, but it it doesn't have any technology associated with it. It's just people and this cultural renaissance that occurred. There is this love of learning that took place that hadn't ever really happened before then. And you see leaders like Da Vinci, who for no reason is able to be an expert in flights and create schematics for flying machines 500 years before they were invented. He's also an incredible artist. He knows all these things about medicine. And I just love this concept of radically pursuing learning like the Renaissance men of Florence, Italy did. Love it. The bonus question now is M&M's plain or peanut? Peanut. That was easy. (laughs) That's my favorite too. (laughs) Yes, got to have the peanuts with the M&M's. So something else that I, I want to chat with you about, you know that I recently released my latest book called Dominate the Game, How Life Changes When You Show Up. Really, that's what happens. You get the outcomes that you want in life based upon if you show up or not. And sometimes it can be difficult to always want to show up and be super motivated. We're not always motivated every single day. And so there can be temptation to procrastinate. There's a chapter in the book all about how to tackle procrastination. So when there are days that you're not feeling, you're like, oh, don't really want to do this today. What do you do to tackle that procrastination? So there's two things I use to motivate me. And one is negative and the other is positive. And the negative is the fuel I use to start taking action 
is the voice of my haters, my competitors, my naysayers, and everybody's got them. I remember in high school, I had a high school teacher who said that I wouldn't make it a year at the Air Force Academy. I had somebody while I was at the Air Force Academy who he slammed the door and he said, you're not going to make it six months in the Air Force. And then I had somebody tell me that I was going to die from cancer. And, and I picture these folks' faces and them saying it when it's 4 a.m. and I'm getting up for a workout and I got to get some motivation to do it. And I, I call it my haterade. It's my fuel that I used to to go, you know, get up and take some activation energy to go prove them wrong. I love it when somebody says I can't do something because I'm going to use that as my fuel to prove them wrong. And I think about it all the time. And that's the negative side. And I say negative because if I get stuck in that, then I'm living to prove somebody else wrong and not for myself. And so there comes a point when I'll wake up at 4 a.m. and I'll think about that person and then I'll realize I don't really care what they think. I don't even know if that guy's still alive who yelled at me at the Air Force Academy. There's a ghost in my head that gets free real estate that uh, you know gets me out of bed every morning. And then at that point, the important question I have to ask myself is, am I still going to get out of bed for myself? In other words, is there something that I connect to? Is there a reason for me to do this that I'm passionate about? And I use the haters to get me going in the race, but I use my own purpose to finish it. And that's always been key to my success. Perfect. That's great. Something else that is important to be successful is being able to what I call manage the game clock effectively. So it's looking at the 24-hour day and making sure that you're being productive and optimizing your time each and every hour, every minute, you know, just doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. What are some of the things that you do to effectively manage your game clock? And to, I mean, you obviously have had a great successful career. What are some of the things that you do to stay productive? Yeah, so I'll answer it a little differently. I really emphasize rest. Now, you heard me talk earlier about work-life harmony and, and how important that is for me. So I get at least eight hours of sleep every single night, and that's been absolutely critical for my success. And once a year, I'll, I'll get less than that just because I, I stayed up too late or you know, I had a bad night's sleep, and, and I'll, I'll feel it. I'll, t- I'll notice a complete difference. And this comes from being a fighter pilot. They forced us to get eight hours of sleep to the point where you would not get money for your family, insurance money for your family, if you crash the plane and they could determine that you didn't get eight hours of sleep that night before, it's up to you to say you didn't get it before you go fly and you could relinquish your life insurance effectively for your family. So they took it very, very seriously. At first, I resented that. I thought that was overkill. I thought, who the heck needs eight hours of sleep? I've survived on four hours every night in college and why would I need this? And then I was just exposed to this entirely new life once I started getting that right amount of rest. And so I took that from my fighter pilot days and I credit the rest with giving me the ability to you know, do the things in business and be on Ninja Warrior and, and do these other things. It comes down to the fact that I give myself that recovery time and that grace to feel better. And the other thing I do from a work-life harmony perspective is I find things that make it a harmony. It's not a balance to me. It's I don't take away from work and give to family or take away from family and give to work. I find ways to have them both complement each other. So when I go on a work trip, I'll bring my kids very often. And I'll bring my kids into the room when we're in a meeting. And from time to time, I'll, I'll run into leaders who don't appreciate that and will wonder why we got a kid running around in the back. And that's a good litmus for me to know that I don't want to work with that person and that I want to be with people that understand a work-life harmony and, and what's required to, to really be successful in all areas of life. I like both of those things. And I like that you talk about work-life harmony. I always use the term work-life integration because it is about integrating it all together. It's not just about two separate work life and then home and family life. It's all one. The other thing I'm glad that you talked about was the getting eight hours sleep, because as you were saying, waking up at 4 a.m., I was like, I wonder if I should ask him how much time he sleeps, because for me, I don't always get eight hours, but I'm a seven to eight hour person. 
I don't get it every day, but like five days a week, I really try to get it. Unfortunately, I have a six-year-old who also wakes me up a lot at night, so it's not a full sleep, but my goal is, is very much to get enough rest because to your point, I mean, you need that. Your body needs to reset, refocus, recharge to be at its best. It's not just about hustling and grinding and getting a couple hours sleep. And people will always ask me uh, with everything that I've done, do you ever sleep? They say it jokingly, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, actually I do. I get a lot of sleep because that is a priority for me to get that rest because your body needs it and your mind. Yes. This was reinforced for me by uh, a mentor of mine, the CEO of Intel, Pat Gelsinger, who used to be the CEO of VMware, was showing me this ring that he wears that tracks his sleep. It's called the Aura Ring, and I wear it now too. And he was showing me that he gets eight hours of sleep. And I probably the most productive human being I've ever been in contact with was just of amazing things and running a Fortune 50 organization. And yet he sleeps eight hours a night. And the old adage is that sleep four hours a night, I'll sleep when I'm dead. If you're sleeping eight hours, you're lazy. All those things are just right out the door. They're complete garbage. I don't even think it matches to reality. I think that people who say it don't live it. I think this is the most successful people in the world know that you have to get sleep. And then they like to talk about how hard they grind when in reality, they're, they're getting the recovery time. So we're getting close to ending the show. So I want to ask, have we had enough virtual drinks to get the rest of the Thor story? <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's leave that for the next podcast. And we'll actually maybe do that over real beverages of choice. All right. And uh, we can satisfy the requirement. Okay, sounds good. So as we look to close the show, Joel, any last thoughts for our listeners and let people know where you at on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I'm on Instagram, I'm on all the social media tools, but I'm most active, certainly from a professional perspective on LinkedIn. And that's where I connect with my network and I share messages. And so if you want to reach me, jump on LinkedIn. I'm happy to have conversations about any of this stuff. I mentor a lot of people. I answer questions about diet, fitness, lifestyle at 46 and being a Ninja Warrior and all those things. So nothing's out of bounds. Don't hesitate to reach out and happy to connect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It has been great chatting with you. Thanks, Jen. So excited to be on the show. You know, for years, I've been a big fan of yours and it's great to see this coming together and have an opportunity to be a part of it. Thank you. You are much appreciated. And thanks again to everyone for listening. If you liked today's episode, make sure you share it with someone else who you think would find the show to be of value. And also, if you haven't already done so, make sure that you follow the podcast so that you never miss a future episode. All right. Thanks again for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thanks for listening to Move the Ball, everybody. If you were inspired by this episode, can you do me a favor and let me know? Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. And also, share the show with a few friends, too. Next, I want you to go to GetInsideTheHuddle.com and join our email list. This will give you priority access to tips and strategies that will help you get more done today. Not tomorrow, not next week, today. You got that? Okay, until next time.